0: So I think we can begin. My name is Guy Armstrong. I'm one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, and um, I appreciate you all coming out this afternoon when there's a 49ers playoff game in progress, (laughs) especially. I know it might have been divided loyalties, but the Buddha is winning in this case, so appreciate that. And also I just appreciate uh, your interest in taking a look back at the original texts, These texts are a little dense, sometimes hard to penetrate, sometimes a little confusing, and take some effort to get in and uh, find the meaning in them. So I appreciate people coming out and making that effort. What we'll be doing over the next six months is offering one of these afternoons every month. Uh, It's on a Donna basis, which means Spirit Rock isn't collecting a fee for you to be here. The teachers who are doing the series are not being paid. And so to the extent that you find the class helpful and wish to express your appreciation, there will be the opportunity to offer a donation or Donna at the end of the afternoon. And as always, it's gratefully received on behalf of the center and on uh, behalf of the teachers as well. So we have a few teachers in the series over these six months. I'm going to begin, then I think Richard Shankman is coming in, James Barras and Temple Smith. I think those are the four of us who will be covering these six months. I can't promise that there will be a sequence to the teachings. Each of us is going to kind of do our own thing, but I think you'll find them all interesting, and all these people have a lot of familiarity with the text, so I think it will be uh, a, good, a good foundation for us to begin with. Our text for today is taken from the Majjima Nikaya, which literally means middle-length collection. It's this uh, brown volume, which you've probably seen before, using a translation from Bhikkhu Bodhi from around 1995, uh, when he published this whole collection as the Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha. I just wrote a review for Inquiring Mind of his new book, which is the translation of the Anguttara Nikaya this book, now called Numerical Discourses of the Buddha, has just come out. And so there'll be a review of it in the next Inquiring Mind. And as I was writing, thinking about Bhikkhu Bodhi's contributions to uh, Dharma in the West, I felt I came to feel that this book, The Majima, was a revolutionary work for uh, serious students of Vipassana and Theravada, because it was the first time that the whole collection of a Nikaya. There are five Nikayas in the Sutta collections. It's the first time that a full translation of a Nikaya had come out in a readable translation with an excellent introduction and good notes and indexes. So we have in this book a way for those who want to kind of self-guide themselves into the study of the Buddha's original words. So, if you were going to start with any one volume in looking at the suttas, this is the one I'd recommend. And so I'm picking one sutta today from this collection for us to look at, which is called the Honeyball. That's sutta number 18. There are 152 discourses or suttas in this whole collection. And we're looking today at number 18. In Pali, it's the Madhupindika sutta. And it's only at the very end that we find out why it's called the Honeyball. Honey So you have to stick around for the (laughs) afternoon to find that out. I think it's a really um, fascinating and important discourse, but it's one that we haven't spent, as Spirit Rock teachers, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about. So some of it um, may be new. Uh, I know you're going to be familiar with some of the key concepts, because you've heard the term papancha a lot, I bet. But the way that it's explained here, I find really interesting, and insightful, and there are some other threads, other suttas that we'll pick up that highlight the profound significance of the term papancha and the way it affects our our human lives. So I'd like to start with a little bit of, of an experiential reflection and ask that we all just step back a moment and with a broad view of dharma take a look at the question, how does suffering arise in our lives? You might say, what are the things that lead us into suffering? Where are, the, where are the difficult areas of our life? What is it by our own activities that lead us into suffering? And of course, this is kind of the central question of the Buddha's teachings. We want to understand what leads to suffering and then how to release it, how to become free. So when I ask that question, what are some of I'm sure you're not at a total loss for answers. What are some of the things that you see in your own life that lead to suffering?
1: Wanting things to be different
0: from the way they are. Wanting things to be different from the way they are. This sounds a lot like one of the noble truths. <laughs> No, that's a very nice formulation of the second noble truth, which is craving. So wanting things to be different than the way they are. Sometimes that expresses itself in desire terms. I want to get something pleasant. Sometimes it expresses itself in aversive terms. I want to push away something threatening or unpleasant. But in any case, we're kind of always trying to manipulate our experience to milk it for something a little bit better. And that's the operation of of craving. How does this activity reflect itself in in your experience? You know, this preference of wanting things to be one way and not wanting them to be another way, how do you notice it comes through in your direct experience in living? How do you see it happening in you? What's the mechanism? Anxiety. Sadness.
1: sadness. Habitual
0: patterns of thought and action. Habitual patterns of thought and action. And in, ter- in action, can we throw in emotion? Thinking, feeling, acting. Emotion is karmic, also, yeah, sort of volitional. So anxiety, sadness are two of those, and the more general formulation is habitual tendencies and ways of thinking and acting and feeling. Does that pretty well cover it? (laughs) That formulation is a very, it's a very comprehensive formulation, isn't it? And under these habitual patterns, we could include also, you know, desire and fear and anger and regret and all kinds of other particular expressions, but it's these habitual tendencies of thinking, feeling, and acting that get us into trouble. So the realm of acting, let's say we're talking about the realm of sila, of ethical conduct in the Buddhist teachings, is more or less covered by the five precepts. Right? If we clean up our lives in terms of the five precepts, not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, not lying, and not (coughs) abusing drugs and intoxicants. We've kind of covered the purification, you might say, or the cleaning up of the conduct of speech and body. Then a lot of emphasis in meditation, this is where we go next, meditation, a lot of emphasis in meditation is put on working with emotions. We start talking about the five hindrances, and then we open up beyond that to look at the, the full range of emotions that people feel. Sadness, and grief, and anger, and desire, and frustration, and self-judgment, and loneliness, embarrassment, regret, all of those. And we work with those emotions one by one to become comfortable with them. Now, the area of thinking. Why is thinking I mean, we can all relate to the distress of these difficult emotions, right? This is one of the hardest things to bear in life. Life has physical pain and life has emotional pain. That is a lot of our dukkha. What's the problem with thinking?
2: We make it worse.
0: Somebody said? We make it worse. We make it worse. How? How how does thinking make things worse? Yeah, thinking helps us dwell in a mind state, which is not helpful. So it, you could say, takes a hold of some situation that causes an emotion and then dwells on it, meaning we kind of go over and over and over. As we dwell, what's happening to the mind state or the emotion? (laughs) We blow it up, don't we? So thinking gets us involved in multiplying the emotional pain. If I have an interaction with you, and you do something that offends me, and I feel some annoyance at the time, once your words stop, who's harming me if I'm getting upset? It's just me, isn't it? Your words have stopped. Any unskillful action from your side has ceased. It's my own thinking about and dwelling on that past situation that causes the harm again and again, that causes the suffering. So, this realm of thinking is is intimately connected with the difficult emotions. If we didn't dwell on the difficult emotions, what would happen to them? (laughs) Yeah. They'd arise and they'd pass away. But by dwelling on the situation, on the people, on the episode, on the emotion itself, we fixate on it and we keep blowing it up. (coughs) So this area of of thinking becomes really crucial if we want to step out of the suffering that, that we create in our lives. Do you feel in control of your thinking? A second at a time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When the mind is steady in meditation, do you feel more secure from thoughts? Mm-hmm. More aware. More aware. Being able
3: to pause.
0: Yeah. <coughs> when you're mindful of your thoughts, can they impact you as strongly? No. 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 Uh, this was pointed to, there's this really uh, fascinating sutta, I'm just going to digress for a moment, that's um, in the Majima, It's number 123. It's called The Wonderful and Marvelous. In this sutta, the Buddha describes is said to describe. I actually don't believe a lot of this. But he describes his birth, where he descended from a heaven realm. Um, Coming out of his mother's womb, it said that he stood up as soon as he was delivered, took eight steps and said, this will be my last birth. (laughs) I have a lot of general trust in the suttas, but I don't have trust in stories like that. So he's describing the wonderful and marvelous qualities of a Buddha and his life and his understanding. And he gets to the very end and he says, And he's talking to uh, his attendant, Ananda. And he said, That being so, Ananda, remember this too is a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. Here, Ananda, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. So in the middle of all this miraculous stuff, that's attributed to his life. He adds, I know my thoughts, I know my feelings, I know my perceptions as they arise, as they persist, and as they pass away. If we set this as our goal as meditators, we would be, you know, achieving it, we would be well down the road to freedom, to liberation. So this is a wonderful aspiration for us. If we can bring mindfulness to the arising of our thoughts, perceptions, and feelings, we will discover a huge amount of inner freedom. That's really the theme of this sutta. It is to start to take a close look at this habit of thinking that we've developed without a lot of attention, without a lot of mindfulness, and a strong encouragement to start making wiser choices in relation to our thoughts. So, I just want to put that, that's kind of the background and the territory of where this sutta is leading. And points to, I think, some of the potential for freedom that can come. All right, let's begin. And what I like to do in uh, going through the sutta, I would like us to read it paragraph by paragraph out loud. So if people are willing, I'll ask different people to do reading of a paragraph at a time. And if you don't want to read, just say pass, and we'll go to the next. Um, but Max, could we, uh, could we begin with you? Because it's short, could you read the first two paragraphs?
3: Okay.
1: Uh, do I need a mic? I don't think so. Okay. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Sakyan country at Kapalavastu in Negrota's park. Then when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed, and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Kapalavastu for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Kapalavastu, and had returned from his alms round after his meal, he went to the great wood for the days abiding, and entering the great wood, sat down at the root of a bilva sapling for the days abiding.
0: Okay, thank you. This describes a fairly typical day in the life of the Buddha. He wakes up, he gets dressed in his robes, he wanders for the morning meal of alms food, and then he comes back and just hangs out. (laughs) Why not when your mind is really peaceful? He doesn't need uh, television, he doesn't need DVDs, he doesn't even need the New York Times and a latte. (laughs) He just sits at the base of a tree and is present and then people can come visit with him, as we'll see happens next. So I want to say a little bit about the setting here. How many of you have been to some of the Buddhist holy sites in India? Yeah, I thought, I thought there were a few. So this is set in Kapilavatthu. Anybody been to Kapilavatthu? I think you were, maybe. Yeah, yeah. This is where the Buddha grew up. It's not his birthplace, which is Lumbini, but it's where he grew up. It's not far from Lumbini, but Lumbini's in Nepal, and this is just across the border in India. If you go to Kapilavatu today, there's nothing there. It's empty farmland by and large. So I don't know where the Great Wood would have been, because there are not many trees left in that part of northern India. But you can see some remnants of where monasteries were erected at the time of the Buddha. This is basically his home, homeland. The clan who lived here were called the Sakyans. The Buddha was a Sakyan. That was his, you could say, tribe or clan. That was his affiliation. His father was the head clansperson. Sometimes it's put out that his father was the king, but the king was actually in um, a different area. The king was not... They paid obeisance to King Pasenadi, who was further west. So his father wasn't a king, but his father was a well-off, well-to-do chief of this clan. So he's in very comfortable surroundings, and you'll see how comfortable in in another uh, passage. And this is Negrota's Park. This is not a place of a huge amount of significance in the suttas, but there are a couple of little stories about it. It's a a park that was given to the Buddha in the first year after his enlightenment, presumably by a wealthy landowner. And it is the site where Mahapajapati first asked the Buddha for ordination. Do you know how he established the bhikkhu sangha? And he didn't establish a sangha, an ordained sangha for women. And then his, basically, I don't know, what would you call it? It was his aunt who had raised him because his mother had died named Mahapajapati, came and said, there are a group of us women who would like to follow you also. Please ordain us. And the Buddha said no. She asked three times and he still said no. That, that was at Negrota's Park in Kapilavatu. Again, the family connection. You'll see a lot of these old Sakyan people are related. They're close, close family ties. Then he left and went to another town called Vesali, which he also spent a lot of time at. And she followed him there, along with a few of the other women who wanted to be ordained. Caught up with him, and Ananda interceded, so the story goes, and convinced the Buddha to ordain women. So he set up full ordination uh, for bhikkhunis. Shortly, I mean, shortly after he had turned it down, and I think fairly early in the life of the teachings. So that's why we had the bhikkhuni order for thousand, thousand or more years until it died out in India and Southeast Asia. Now it's coming back, which is wonderful. So that was, that was the site at uh, Negrota's Park. Then let's go on. Uh, so he's, he's just hanging out in the great wood. He's sitting and uh, section three Describes this next little encounter. So Marlena, could you read that?
2: Sure. <clears throat> Don the Sakyan, while walking and wandering for exercise, also went to the Great Wood, <clears throat> and when he had entered the Great Wood, he went to the Dilva Sapling, where the Blessed One was, and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he stood at one side leaning on his stick and asked the Blessed One, What does the recluse assert? What does he proclaim?
0: Okay, thank you. So Don Dupani, uh this may not have been his given name. This may be something of a nickname. It means stick in hand. <laughs> so he's leaning on, it was said to be a golden stick, cane, although he was, he was actually quite young. So it gives the impression that he's a little pretentious. You have to be wealthy to have a gold stick. He didn't need it for walking, but he liked to brandish it like, I would say, a dandy. So his name, Dandapani, he's kind of a dandy. That's the trip with him. Now, in the vernacular of the day, just coming up to a renunciate and saying, hmm, what do you assert, what do you proclaim, is not a very friendly way to get started. Usually they say they exchange courteous and amiable talk and then the person sits to one side. So Dandapani is still presumably standing, leaning on his cage, oh, what do you teach? So he's coming across a little arrogant. He's fairly, fairly young, so he doesn't have the stature of an elder. And he's, like I would say, kind of spoiling for a fight. If you know about Indian religious um, circles of this time, there were a lot of different sects with a lot of different views, and they love to argue. So it's kind of like, what do you teach? And I'm going to tell you what I think. So that's the way he's provoking the Buddha. Now, interestingly enough, he is the Buddha's uncle on his mother's side. He is a brother to Maya, who was uh, the Buddha's mother. And so he's also a brother to Mahapajapati, who became the first ordained woman. Nonetheless, or maybe uncles can be a little more assertive than anybody else. He's not particularly friendly in this approach. So let's see how the Buddha reacts. and Maybe we can keep going on. the. Let's start on the other side and wind back toward the middle.
1: Friend, I assert and proclaim my teaching in such a way that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas in this generation with its recluses and Brahmins, its princes and its people, in such a way that perceptions no more underlie that Brahmin who abides detached from sensual pleasures, without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. So here comes this guy, kind of a dandy, who wants to argue with him. And he says, so what do you teach? He's just kind of spoiling for a fight. And the Buddha says, I proclaim such a teaching that I do not argue with anyone in the world. (laughs) Clever, right? He doesn't answer directly. He picks up on the energy and responds to the energy. So you'll see that many of the Buddha's discourses are delivered to one person specifically. He, He might have said something very different if a person had approached him respectfully. And in many situations, he's looking for the one person in the crowd who can understand his message to the deepest level possible. And so he may talk past a number of people there, and the whole teaching may be oriented to one person who he will recount got it in the course of that discourse. Sometimes we want to take these exchanges in the discourses and say, well, this is like the Buddha's teaching or the central truth that he was pointing to. But a lot of them are very situational. And this is one that's very situational. This is not the central crux or the most profound center of the Buddha's teaching. I teach in such a way as to not argue. But it was situational. It was the teaching for Dandapani on that day. So let's see what the, um, oh, and we should pull out here, a teaching such that uh, I do not argue, one does not quarrel, a teaching such that perceptions no more underlie that Brahman. Here, Brahman is being used not as a caste, which it was at the time. It was the religious or spiritual caste of the day, and the Brahmins tended to be wealthy and upper class. But it, it, it is used in its more basic meaning of holy person. Perceptions no more underlie that holy person who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for being. So this basically refers to someone whose heart is liberated. They're not drawn to sense pleasures, and they're not invested in becoming something great. They're free, in other words. But what's key here is perceptions no more underlie them. This is a subtle point, but it's kind of the heart of the sutta. Perceptions don't underlie one whose mind is liberated. So we have to stop and ask for a minute, what does this word perception mean in the Buddha's language? In Western psychology, philosophy, the way I hear it, perception is um, sense datum. Right? Like there's a perception of a sound. That's the registering of the sound in our experience. But in the Buddhist language, it's something different. The word is, that word is contact. In the Buddhist language, or the way it's been translated, the impinging of sense data on us through sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, and feelings is called contact. We're always contacting the world through these six senses. In Western language, we would be saying we're perceiving the world through these six senses, but in Buddhist language, the way it's been translated perception means something different. So the word for contact is pasa, P-H-A-S-S-A. We'll meet it later on also the word for, that's being translated perception is sanya. This is a key word. It's s-a-n-n-a with the two tildes, sanya. Perception or sanya means the recognition of a sense datum. So, hearing the sound like pre-verbally, that's contact. But when your attention turns toward it and you say, that's the meditation gong, that's perception. So that labeling faculty, the, the naming, the categorizing, which is based on memory, you wouldn't know to say that unless you'd met a meditation gong before. It's a mental activity, that's perception. So animals have this quality too. When you open a can of dog food at 5 p.m., your puppy knows what that is, doesn't doesn't she? She comes bounding over because she recognizes that sound. So perception is a part of the normal functioning of mind. Um, it's not in any way wrong or to be got rid of. You know, sometimes people think, "Oh, I was sitting in meditation. I heard the sound, and I immediately thought footsteps. I shouldn't do that. I should just stay with the bare experience of hearing." but actually this perceiving faculty is one that goes on all the time. Our minds just kind of organize that way. I'm sure it has something to do with survival. You know, (laughs) millions of years ago we had to recognize what might eat us or what we might eat. So, you know, very handy for survival. It's an integral part of us. We don't need to worry about it. We don't need to turn it off. So don't worry that it comes in with some verbiage overlaying your basic sense experience, it's not a problem. Words are the way we meet, meet the world. That's okay. If perception is wrong, inaccurate, then it can create problems, but the fact of perceiving is not a problem. So this is a faculty of Sanya. It takes our experience and it categorizes it. So as you look around the room, you are categorizing and seeing, you know, women. Men, chairs, tankas, Buddha, kuan yin, bell, and so forth. We may not be verbalizing it, but our mind is organizing that all the time. If we stuck with the bare sense data, all we would see is form and color. You know, Turquoise, blob. You know, brown, blob. Blonde, blob. But we we do more than that. We interact with that form and color, and we give it names. That's okay. So this is the quality of perception. It's a recognition. It does more than just put things in a category. It brings along all the associations that we have with that sense object based on our past experience. So, as I entered the room, I saw people that I knew and I perceived them as people I had known before and had warm feelings for. Um, when you go home and you meet friends or family, you have often many, many years of associations with those people, you know, both pleasant and difficult. When we walk out to the parking lot, we'll see a range of cars out there. And when I go out to the parking lot and I see a Prius, I think, oh, beautiful. I love, I love Priuses. <laughs> I don't have one, but if I had to buy a car, then that's probably what I would, what I would buy. And if I go into the, you know, town somewhere and I see somebody driving a Humvee, and great apologies if there's somebody like that today, <laughs> I think, I don't like that car so much because it you know, uses a lot of gas. So, we have all kinds of associations with the things we perceive, and they're very deeply conditioned. You know, if you've ever tried to change the dynamics in a person intimate relationship, you know how fixed some of those patterns of perceiving are. We perceive our partner in a certain way. We perceive our child in a certain way. They perceive us in the same way. Not so easy to undo those associations so as soon as we connect with the world which is really just arising fresh in each moment right it's there's something there's something very unspoiled about the reality of the present moment but we have this quality of perception and it pulls along a bunch of the past and past associations and so it it mixes into our mind in a way that we can easily get entangled. So what is being pointed to here is for someone who is free, they're not bound by their perceptions. Perceptions don't underlie them. So often we are, we construct ourselves on our perceptions of our role, of our personal history, of our relationships, of our status, of our car, our home, our wealth, or whatever. So we overlay on the basics of what we have contact with all sorts of interpretations that come automatically based on those old associations. And that's all part of perception. That meaning comes with a perception. So that's why perception can be quite uh, entangling. Can be, but doesn't have to be. So this is... This little piece right here that is the reply to Dandapani in a way lays out the gist of the sutta and what's going to be explained in more detail. So let's see how Dandapani responds to that that teaching. Question? Yeah.
1: This is really helpful what you're saying, but I'm thinking an experience of times when there was a moment of just hearing the the bell that momentarily was not elaborated Uh and how freeing that moment was. Uh So it seems to me that there's still, um, it can be useful to, to see that overlay, not to make it a problem, but to see that there's pure perception, sound, awareness, and then there's mental elaboration that names and identifies it and associates to it.
0: Yes, yes, yeah, thank you. I think that's very true. There are times when the little verbal overlay on sense datum either doesn't come in or comes in very weakly, very faintly, and there's a greater feeling of spaciousness as a result of that. And just being able to stay close to the bare sense data gives a greater feeling of you know, inner peace, spaciousness, presence. So when it happens like that, it's, very, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good sign of meditation developing, so that's a nice thing. But I wouldn't want to hold that up as the way meditation should go. The most important thing is, if it's like that, you notice it's like that. If you hear the sound and then the thought arises bell, that's okay too. But you know the difference. You don't think that the sound is the bell you understand that bell is a conceptual overlay that you're putting on the sound. So if you see the sound as a sound and the perception as a perception, then you're clear. Yeah, that's fine. So let's see how Dandapani responds to this opening teaching. Dana, have you got a sutta you could read from?
2: and raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered in three lines. Then he departed, leaning on his stick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we have to value these small moments of humor in the suttas because they don't come all that often. But this is a good one. Um, What do you read of his reaction? What's going on in his feeling level? I mean, it's kind of cryptic, right? But what do you suspect? In, In Lack of comprehension.
3: Resistance. Yes. Skepticism. I don't want a relationship with you. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, don't want to relate. Skeptical. Grump. I, I think grump. grump. Yeah, yeah. And then he goes away. So he's kind of, you know, uncomprehending, confused, frustrated, annoyed, and then he just stalks off which is not a bad outcome from the Buddha's point of view. <laughs> he doesn't have to get into a dispute. So we kind of knew Dandapani was a little bit ill-tempered when he arrived, and this sort of confirms it. So he, he walks off, and then let's see where the story goes next. Would you please?
1: Then when it was evening, the Blessed One rose from meditation and went to Negrota's park, where he sat down on a seat made ready for him and told the Bhikkhus what had taken place. Then a certain Bhikkhu asked the Blessed One,
0: Actually, could you continue with the next paragraph?
1: But, Venerable Sir, how does the Blessed One assert and proclaim his teaching in such a way that he does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, in this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its princes and its people? And, Venerable Sir, how is it that perceptions no more underlie the Blessed One that Brahman who abides detached from sensual pleasures, without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being.
3: Okay,
0: thank you. So in um, paragraph six, uh, it just describes the Buddha going back to Negrota's park where he's actually living. That's where his hut would have been and where other bhikkhus are staying also. And then as he often does, he relates the events of the day as a teaching story for the people who are still there around the, the monastery, and then they question him about it. So this paragraph seven uh, introduces one of the other common uh, traits of the suttas, which is repetition. We heard the dialogue, didn't we?
3: <laughs>
0: we, we read that once, Bonte, but we're going to read it again. So you'll find that many of the key passages get repeated once, twice, sometimes many times. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. I think the repetition does bring them home more deeply. So I would encourage you, when a repetition comes, don't just get frustrated and skip it. Read it through and engage with it again because often it's the really key passages that get repeated, and see if it says something differently to you. You'll really notice this when you read these out loud. If you're ever kind of working with a sutta and it's not really flowing very well, try reading it out loud to yourself. The pacing changes, and the impact, because you're hearing the words, will also change. And then you can really get into enjoying the repetition. Repetition is an important part of meditation practice also as I'm sure you know. A friend of ours was teaching meditation at Google. You know, mindfulness is getting big in the corporate (laughs) world. You know, in hospitals, in prisons, military, mindfulness is taking off. So she was teaching at Google, and she had a bunch of really bright, young, technical people, you know, men, women, both, young and bright. She was in the second day of the class, they sat down, And uh, she said, uh, this time I'm going to uh, give you more instruction about paying attention to your breath. I want you to sit down and feel your breath. And the hand went up. He said, but Miss, we did that yesterday. (laughs) So,
3: (laughs) maybe doing that for a lot of days.
0: So here, too, we're going to hear things again and again. And if we can be patient with it, sometimes it will go in more deeply. So one of the things that the question points to is that this teaching was a little bit cryptic. It was not so obvious what the Buddha meant by perceptions no more underlie that Brahman. So they're asking for a little bit of explanation. So we get to paragraph
4: 8. Okay. Okay.
2: Bhikkhu as to the source through which perceptions and notions born born of mental proliferation beset a man. If nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, of the underlying tendency to aversion, of the underlying tendency to views, of the underlying tendencies to doubt, of the underlying tendencies to conceit of the underlying tendency to desire for being, of the underlying tendency to ignorance. This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice words, and false speech. Here these evil unwholesome states cease cease without remainder.
0: Thank you. There's a lot in this paragraph. This is punchy. So we want to slow down and take a little time with this. First of all, he changes his language a little bit in the very opening. The source, my edition, by the way, is a little different, so um, I I better read off the newer edition, which you, you all have the newer edition. As to the source through which perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a, and I would prefer person, here. The word literally may have been man, but let's use the word person. Beset a person. If nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and hold to, this is the end of. Then he lists a bunch of unwholesome states. So, first thing is we've changed the wording. It's not just perceptions. Now it's perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation. The Pali word here, it's a phrase. There are three words strung together, and again this is kind of the heart of the sutta. Papancha is the word that's being translated as mental proliferation. So the sutta is really about the theme of papancha, which we will translate mostly as mental or conceptual proliferation. The tendency of the mind to spin out in an uncontrolled way with thinking. As somebody mentioned earlier that we dwell with our thoughts on things and we run the same thoughts over and over again somewhat out of control. So this is the thrust of papancha. It's like thinking has gone amok. is running away with us. And then when it does that, it goes into, can wander into all kinds of uh, pleasant and unpleasant territory. Thoughts will find their way into things. Perceptions and notions. So we, uh, so these two words are uh, sanya and notions is sankha. So it's papancha, sanya. So these two words we know, papancha, p-a-p-a-n-c-a. Sanya is the word for perception. And then this word notion is sankha, S-A-N-K-H-A. Perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation. So as we spin out through our thinking, we see things in our life that we react to through our memories or projections. We think things based on those proliferations. And then those disturb us, they beset us, they trouble us. Like the person who thinks about a tiger, and then gets afraid of the tiger. This is what we're doing with our thought all the time. So, Papancha, Sanya, Sankha is this whole fabrication through the wandering mind of all kinds of conceptual imaginings that lead us into difficulty. The key word that we'll come back to again, a phrase. Then, how do we relate to these? When these perceptions and notions that we've been proliferating about come, come into contact with us. How do we relate? Do we delight in them, welcome them, and hold on to them? So this is that quality of fixating. So you're rummaging through the memory storehouse, and you remember something that happened last week with a friend or a colleague. How do you relate to that memory? Do you let it come and let it go? As the Buddha said, He could see his perceptions, feelings, and thoughts arise, persist, and pass away. Or do we delight, welcome, and hold on to that memory? Some plan about the future occurs to us. I could go for a vacation in Costa Rica this winter. Wow. Now, do I let that thought come, see it as a thought, or do I fixate on it and take a hold of it and start planning, you know, am I going to use Kayak or Expedia for my airfare? You know, Am I going to have to rent a car or do I stay in a resort or I don't need a blah, blah, blah. And then we can spin out about that for a while. So as these thoughts, perceptions come out of proliferating, do we fixate on them, hold on out of some kind of emotional investment or not? What's recommended? Let it go. Let it come, let it go. Of course, some of them we may need to do our work effectively to take care of ourselves and our families, but those are relatively few in the whole number that we cling to unnecessarily. So if we delight and hold on, we are not ending these underlying tendencies. This is an important list. This is one of the other list that we don't talk about a lot, but it's actually very um, central. These are called the anusaya. It means underlying tendency. It's a-n-u-s-a-y-a. There are seven of them, which he lists here. Lust, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, desire for being, and ignorance. Have you heard some of these before?
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. The Buddha focused on unwholesome states of mind and wholesome states of mind, and he made different lists of each of them. Okay, What are some of the lists of the unwholesome states? Five Five hindrances. What, what else? The poisons or kilases. The fetters, ten fetters to keep us bound. Vipalases, perversions of understanding. So there are a bunch of lists. Uh, the taints the asavas.
3: It's
0: a big one. So there are a bunch of these lists. They're used in different contexts. The anusaya are in some ways a very fundamental layer of the mind. The taints also, or asavas, also have this very fundamental nature. You might say the most deeply conditioned tendencies of mind are in the taints and they they reappear here. So, uh, lust is basically the desire for pleasant experience. Aversion or resistance is disliking. So these are so fundamental to the mind. These are basically two of the poisons and two of the hindrances. The underlying tendency to views. Views are one of the four types of clinging. The Buddha said there are four things, four ways we cling. One of them is views. So we'll get into views more as we go through this, this sutta. Of the underlying tendency to doubt. This includes perplexity, uncertainty, particularly about the path. Of the underlying tendency to conceit, desire for being, and ignorance. Though so Conceit is this quality of comparing ourselves. It's basically considering ourselves to be something. But once we're something we compare Are we better than, worse than, equal to other people? So the judging mind that takes us to be something, this um, one of the most deep-rooted tendencies that only is uprooted at full liberation, the tendency to desire for being. How did we get here? How did we get in this body? The Buddha said it was because there was a desire to be. Why are we afraid of dying? That's a gut fear, isn't it? Quite independent of the pain, you might be assured that your death was going to be painless and yet there would often be fear connected with that. Why is that? Desire for being. We want to exist. Most things that take birth want to exist. Everything that I know of, that is born, wants to exist. And the tendency to ignorance. Ignorance is not understanding things the way they are, believing that there's a self when there isn't one. So these seven things are very deeply conditioned habits of the mind. And I find it so interesting, this translation, underlying tendency. And I think this is probably a faithful translation. You know, I think people uh, felt when Freud came along that he invented the unconscious. (laughs) that he was the first one to notice that there were things going on under the surface. But this word anusaya has been around for 2,600 years. So as I see it, this is kind of the level of what we might call the unconscious, because these things are sort of lying dormant in us until something happens to trigger them. But because we have these tendencies, these inclinations, we're not safe. Any of them can be triggered at any moment. And then they come through as a suffering state. So this is the realm of the anusaya. they are dormant tendencies that are in in all of us until they're worked out. All of them can be purified. All of them can be released. But it's not, not easy, not quick. And then it gets into a very interesting section. It goes from the underlying tendencies to this is the end of resorting to rods and weapons of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recriminations, malicious words, and false speech. Or in other words, this is where where the underlying tendencies lead, is to this whole area of dispute. It's interesting. We, we don't talk about this a lot in the West. I don't hear us talking about it a lot, but the Buddha talked about it a lot. What creates disputes for people? I think this is really important because it shows the, the breadth of his interest in teaching. He was looking upon society, looking upon life, as it was at that time, and he saw one of the great sources of suffering were people arguing with one another. Quarreling, entering into disputes, and then taking up rods and weapons and actually coming to blows. This hasn't exactly stopped today. But we tend to leave, we, you know, as Buddhists we tend to leave that to oh, that civil society. And we're more, you know, how can we cultivate heart of loving-kindness? But in the broader society, this is a really important question. He has a lot of teachings on why disputes arise and what's the cause? So, I'd just like to read you a few. They're, they're in suttas other than, than these. these. This analysis of what causes arguments generally runs on two tracks. One is views, and the other is craving. So, in the society at his time, where there was so much religious debate, there was a lot of argument about views. And you can see this in the academic world today. I don't know if you ever peek into the academic world. There are some very nasty fights (laughs) that go on because one person's theory is different from another person's theory. And what difference does it make? But they get very upset. Buddhists can do that too. Um, So these are good admonishments, cautionary words for us as Buddhists. And I'll read some quotes that really point to this. But views are one key way that disputes, arguments, hurt feelings, grudges, insults come about. Another one is craving. I want something and I don't want you to have it. And you can see that in the conquest of land, in the pursuit of money, and all kinds of criminal activity. So I just want to read some of these passages uh, because I think they're quite um, illuminating, quite, quite wise. This is from uh, Samyutta Nikaya spoken by the Buddha, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it is the world that disputes with me. A proponent of the Dhamma does not dispute with anyone in the world. Now, that's not to say you can't sit down with a good friend and have a discussion where you take differing views of what a passage means or how you apply it in your life. That can be a healthy discussion. But when he says dispute in this context, it means argument, where there's a real sense of conflict and somebody's coming away feeling like they won, somebody else feeling like they lost. So there's suffering involved in this situation. I do not dispute with the world, it is the world that disputes with me. (laughs) And another place that he mentioned something like this, he said it's because one who sees the truth knows it and they don't have to argue about it. And you can kind of see that, can't you? That if we get into an argument, there's usually a little insecurity underneath because we aren't resting in real knowing. We're resting in some kind of belief. So this is a very interesting thing to look at. In the Sutta Nipata, the sage does not get involved in any dispute that has arisen. And I think he means emotionally involved because he was actually asked to mediate disputes. happened toward the end of his life. There were some water rites that were uh, became the source of a war between two neighboring clans up north. And he did help mediate that. Again from the Sutta Nipata, Desisting from all theories, the wise one does not enter into dispute in the world. Desisting from all theories. So when we're talking Dharma with someone, are we talking from our personal experience and something that we know and feel confident in? Or are we attaching to a theory that we think is the way things are, and we want to argue with somebody who holds a different theory. And then the Buddha says, desisting from all theories. And then I, I love this passage also from the Sutta Nipata. This I do now declare, after investigation there is nothing among all the doctrines that such a one as I would embrace. That's a strong statement. This I do now declare, after investigation, there is nothing among all the doctrines that such a one as I would embrace. Seeing misery in philosophical views, without adopting any of them, I discovered inner peace. Isn't this interesting? We're not in Dharma practice to make up a theory even if it's the best theory in the world. I have a theory there is no self. And I think this will free you if you take it up. Yeah, but I feel like I have a self. No, you don't have a self. (laughs) I know you don't have a self. In all his understanding, he didn't come up with one thing that he would cling to as a doctrine that should be believed, that he would try to defend against all comers and say, this is my philosophical view. Seeing misery and philosophical views, without adopting any of them, I discovered inner peace. That's our mission, to find inner peace. It's not to develop philosophical views or cling to them. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by wisdom, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions they wander about the world annoying people. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, isn't it? So I always look for this in, in Dhamma discussions and teachings and in teachers. Is there a general sense of metta in the discussion, or is there a fixed holding, a rigid holding on to a view that will create conflict? I think that's a very helpful way to to look at views. So even though there's something in Buddhism called right view, that shouldn't be clung to either. Because right view is more a way of seeing than it is a philosophical doctrine. So that's one way that we get into disputes is um, is by holding on to views. And the other way is basically this force of of desire. So again in the Sutta Nipata, quarrels and disputes come from having preferences, from holding things dear. We hold on to the things that we treasure, whether it's our reputation, whether it's our money, whether it's our home. Once we stake out, this is mine, and we hold that and cherish it, then we'll come into conflict. Um, In another section in the Anguttara, the roots of dispute are said to be if someone is angry and revengeful, contemptuous and domineering, envious and avaricious, deceitful and fraudulent, has ill intent or wrong views, or clings tenaciously to one's own views. This covers a lot of ground. And then I thought I would just read this. There's a passage in the Anguttara that is interesting because it shows kind of the progression. I will teach you nine things rooted in craving. And what are the nine things rooted in craving? So this is a, you'll see this step by step kind of building one step on the next. Independence on craving, there is seeking. Independence on seeking, there is gain. Independence on gain, there is judgment. Independence on judgment, there is desire. Independence on desire, there is attachment. Independence on attachment, there is possessiveness. Independence on possessiveness, there is miserliness. Independence on miserliness, there is safeguarding. With safeguarding as the foundation, originate the taking up of rods and weapons. Quarrels and disputes. It's, interesting, it's kind of a step by step analysis of how we, how we form a relationship with something and turn it into possession, and that becomes the ground for uh, argument. Okay. go a little longer before we, then we'll, we'll take a break in a few minutes. So this is um, quite a dense paragraph, this um, paragraph 8. And let's go on with a couple of more paragraphs. Please.
1: That is what the Blessed One said. Having said this, the sublime one arose from his seat and went into, the, into his dwelling. Then soon after the Blessed One had gone, people considered now friends the blessed one has risen from his seat and gone into this dwelling. after giving a summary in brief, without expounding the detail and meaning now who will expound this detail then they considered the venerable maha kachana Mm -hmm. is praised by the teacher and esteemed by his wise companions of the holy life he is capable of expounding the detailed meaning those who went to him and asked
0: him the meaning of this. Yeah. So you'll often see this in the suttas. The Buddha will say something that's a little cryptic, and then they'll go to some senior monk or nun, because nuns also get questioned in this way and answer, and there are suttas in the majima delivered by nuns as well. And um, then they will give a detailed explanation. And Mahakachana was said to be the monk who was most skilled at giving in detail the meaning that the Buddha had explained in brief. So let's see what happens when they approach him with the next, so let's do yeah, let's do number, just number 12. Um,
1: the venerable Mahakachana replied, Friends, it is as though a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, thought that Heartwood should be sought for among the branches of the of the great tree, then possessed of Heartwood, after he had passed over the week in the trunk. And so it is with you, venerable sirs, that you think that I should be asked about the meaning of this, after you passed the Blessed One by when you were face to face with the teacher. For knowing, the Blessed One knows, seeing, and sees. He is vision, he is knowledge, he is the Dhamma, he is the Holy One, he is the Sayer, the Proclaimer, the Elucidator of Meaning, the Giver of the Deathless, the Lord of the Dhamma, the, I'm sorry, I don't know. Tathagata. Tathagata. That was the time when you should have asked the Blessed One the Meaning, as he told you, so you should have remembered it.
0: (laughs) It's a little bit of a scolding, isn't it? (laughs) And he's right, huh? They should have asked the Buddha. So Mahakachana, though he's a senior monk, is very deferential to the Buddha in this passage and goes into several lines of praise for the Buddha. This is one of the things you'll find in the canon from time to time are these words of praise for the Buddha, for the Dhamma, for the Sangha. These are wonderful sources for reflection um, that's why I uh, printed out one page, that extra page of handout. Just the one page that starts preliminary homage. Mm. These are traditional chants in praise of the Buddha that are chanted frequently in monasteries that have been handed down for many many years. And in many cases the the words come from the suttas uh, themselves. So I thought it might just pick up our energy a little bit if we just did a little bit of chanting at this point in the afternoon. So the way that this is structured, I borrowed this from the Abhayagiri monks chanting book, and the way that it's structured is the phrase that's in parentheses The one person who's leading the chant usually chants that solo. And then all the other phrases, even though they're bracketed, normally it might be divided, but today we're just going to chant these in unison. Um, And we'll do first the Pali, and then we'll do the English. Then we'll go to the Recollection of the Buddha, we'll do the Pali, and then we'll do the English. The English is a translation of the Pali in both cases, so you'll get a sense of the meaning. And I brought this in because I want you to get a sense of the that there's a devotional quality that comes through the suttas that is part of monastic life that we don't often do at spirit rock events. But some people resonate strongly with it and love it as a part of practice. Other people resist it recovering from other religious
3: traditions,
0: (laughs) and um, don't want anything to do with it. So I offered in this light way to see if it's something that you might enjoy. So I'll chant the bits that are in parentheses, then we'll chant the other parts in in unison, and we'll do this preliminary homage three times in both Pali and English.
4: Han Buddhasa Bhagavato Puvabhaga Namakaram Se, Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddasa Namo tasa, bhagavato, arahato, samma, sambuddhasa. Now let us pay preliminary homage to the Buddha. Homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, Noble and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, Noble and perfectly enlightened one.
0: I left out one key instruction. When there's a mark above, you chant that on a higher tone. When there's a mark below, on a lower tone. And when there's no mark, it's on a middle tone. You all got it anyway.
4: Recollection of the Buddha. Han Damayang Buddha karomase Karoma Piso bhagava Arahang Sama Sambudo Vijacharana Sampano Sugato lo kavidu. Anu taro purisadamasarati Sata De Matanu Sanam Buddho Bhagavati. Now let us chant the recollection of the Buddha. He, the blessed one, is indeed the pure one. <laughs> the perfectly enlightened one. He is impeccable in conduct and understanding, the accomplished one, the knower of the worlds. He trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. He is teacher of gods and humans. He is awake and holy.
0: So if you were living in a monastery you might chant this a couple of times a day and you know it does a few things it tends to pick up the energy it puts kind of a nice melody in your head but not very stirring right it's not like Tchaikovsky's 5th or anything it's going to rouse the emotions pretty mellow and it reminds you of the beautiful qualities of the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha so it's nice to have these uh, images and these words accompanying us as we practice So, the qualities of the Buddha that are pointed to here, when we look at this one now, let us chant the recollection of the Buddha. The three words they use are blessed, pure, and enlightened. And it's said that these stand for kind of the three key qualities of the Buddha. The blessed stands for compassion, because he is able to offer blessings to people out of his love and compassion. The pure stands for his purity, That is, the mind that has been freed of greed, aversion, and delusion. The perfectly enlightened one refers to his wisdom, that he is awakened by developing penetrating insight. It's the insight that liberates. So these three qualities of compassion, purity of heart, and wisdom are just sort of summed up in this one line. And as we reflect on that, it can remind us what (coughs) what we're practicing for. And I'm sure you can see these qualities in teachers that you connect to strongly, that you admire. The, our staff is going to be, the Spirit Rock staff is going to be doing a retreat this week. which Dana is going to be leading. Dana is our staff, staff Dharma teacher. And the theme of the retreat is brightening the mind. It's a wonderful thing to take into daily life. And so one of the ways to brighten the mind is to reflect on the qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. If this seems a little too, I don't know, idolatrous or worshiping, think about the qualities of a teacher that you love. And by reflecting on those qualities, you can inspire yourself any time that you feel the mind needs brightening. It's really a wonderful exercise. Why don't we take a break here? You've been very patient, and uh, suttas are hard work. So, listening for over an hour, a lot of hard work already. So, let's take a 10-minute break. I'll ring a bell, and then we'll come back together.